I want to welcome everybody. Happy Fourth of July weekend to you. It's good to see so many of you in here with us today. Welcome if you're participating online with us today at home or on your Fourth of July vacation spot. We're glad that you're dialed in online as well. Let's say our monthly memory verse together. We are in the book of Psalm, Psalm chapter 121, verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. We continue to study together in the book of John and we are working through the passion narrative. We're in the second message that we're together here in John chapter 18 and we continue to be moved and motivated by the example of Jesus as Jesus is facing so many different injustices in this moment of his life. He is being betrayed. He's being lied about. There's deceit. There's denial. A false trial before him. And it's still Thursday evening, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He has been arrested. And in the course of his arrest, if you remember the time we spent together last week, in the course of his arrest, he both stuns and shocks his captors. And we find Jesus full of power, yet in the same moment full of grace, full of compassion, mercy, demonstrating love and an obedience to the will of his Father. Jesus' heart for his people and his jealousy for both his Father's name and his Father's glory are on full display throughout the Passion Narrative. And today we're going to further explore Jesus' example. And we're going to look at what Jesus' example can teach us about how we as believers in Christ can experience freedom in the face of great injustice. What tool has Jesus given us to guarantee our freedom no matter what we face here on earth? And how did Jesus use this tool? to demonstrate his own freedom in the situation that he has found himself in right here in John chapter 18. Before we dive into our text, we're in John chapter 18, verses 13 to 27 today. Before we jump in, let's pray for God's guidance over our time together in his word. Lord, we open up your word today. We know that you have great intentions to use it to change our hearts and to change our minds. As Neil alluded to in his prayer this morning and prayed, we are living in a country that we celebrate this weekend. We rejoice that indeed you've you've placed us here with a purpose and for a reason. But Lord, perhaps more than ever, we so clearly see the things today that divide us. And we know, Lord, that your word is a source of truth that the Holy Spirit is able to use to bring unity in our body. And that's what we pray, Lord. We pray that we would be people that unify around your truth, your word. As you prayed in the garden, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And we rejoice in that truth corporately together as a body this morning. Might you use your word to help us grow in our love for you and our love for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
John chapter 18, verses 13 to 27. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. Hard to imagine today. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once... The rooster crowed. Now under arrest and bound by his captors, they are moving Jesus towards a parade of religious dignitaries. So you remember on our map last week, you see in the blue box, kind of where we started over there in this area of the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we move towards Calvary, before we can get there, you see the red box and the red box signifies the area where it is believed that these events, somewhere in that space, were to be taking place. Jesus' first stop would be to stand before the great religious institution who was known as Annas. And Jesus, in this text, He is going to face two men probably the two men who were most threatened by his presence, by his following, and by his teaching. Annas, he was a legacy leader of the Jews. You want to talk about aristocracy and bureaucracy? Five of Annas's sons served as chief priest. Five. And in fact, right now in Jesus' day, Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, is currently serving as the chief priest. 
These were men who had empires to protect. They had crowns to hold on to. They're men who had built for themselves gigantic kingdoms on this earth. And they did it in the name of God. Jesus, by His words, by His actions, He had torn down their empires, burned up their crowns, and systematically overturned the comfortable kingdoms that they had built for themselves. And even on the map that we just looked at, we could see the wealth of these religious leaders and what they had accumulated for themselves. They lived in expensive houses, ones that most Jews, most who were there practicing the faith every single day, they could have never afforded. These men, not only did they live in these expensive houses that many other of the Jews would never have been able to afford, but they they had their own security teams. As you can see in our text, they have their own domestic servants. They had wealth upon wealth upon wealth. These were men who had everything to lose as Jesus' following and His teaching continued to grow more and more popular among the people. And so in order to protect themselves, to preserve their empires, to solidify the positions that they had within their kingdoms on earth, they had determined in their mind that Jesus must go. And indeed, as it says in verse 14, it was even Caiaphas who himself made this remark earlier in John. You might remember it as we studied it months back in John 11, chapter 50. Don't you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? And so this was the habit of these religious leaders. This was the habit of the chief priests, of the Pharisees, of the scribes. They, they were in the habit of culturally, carefully, carefully dressing up their own desire for self-preservation as something that was in the best interest of the people. When really it was their own interests that they were most vicious about protecting. Their leadership, the leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests, their leadership and the leadership of Jesus are contrasted throughout the Gospel of John. In in John's Gospel, one of the groups, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious leaders, they're painted as as like this, this master who is whipping his subjects into submission by duty-driven traditions and obligation-bound customs. Then you have the leadership of Jesus. And what is Jesus' example? Especially in the Gospel of John. Motivated by love. He is leading, He's creating opportunities for His people to follow and delight in. And it's not that what Jesus was about to experience was a delight. The cross was not delightful in any way to Jesus. But Jesus would face it in a way that revealed the determination that He had to love His sheep and to honor His Father. What does it say in the Scriptures? For the joy that was set before Him, He would endure the cross 
for you, for me. And so in verse 15, he is led to Annas and two of his disciples follow. And the narrative is actually going to break off here into a separate trial that's taking place nearby. Take a look at verse 15 again. Simon Peter followed Jesus. So did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So we know the identity of one of these disciples was Peter. The other we're unsure of. We don't know who the other disciple was. Some believe it was John, the writer of the gospel. Some think that maybe it was Joseph of Arimathea. Other scholars think it could have been Nicodemus. If you remember, Joseph and Nicodemus were the two men who would later remove Jesus' body from the cross and prepare him for a proper burial. Whoever it might have been, it was a person with some standing and clout in order to gain entrance into the charade that was taking place. Again, the second part of verse 16. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And so here's Peter, the poor fisherman. He was left to wait outside until the other disciple was able to convince one of Annas' servants to let him in. And now for Peter, friends, things are about to get incredibly curious and unusual. Walk back with me to John chapter 13. Take a look at John chapter 13. It'll be on the screen Verses 36 to 38. And remember this interaction that Peter had had with Jesus just a few days before. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus knew what was in Peter. Friends, he knows what's in all of us. That's who Jesus is. And he reveals to Peter in this very moment, Peter's own denial. And for Peter, his trial is beginning right now in this text in verse 17. It's not just Jesus that's facing a trial here. In our text, the gospel writer is showing us that Peter too is on trial. Same narrative, different scene. And oh, how different these two men's responses would be. Look at verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, look at the formation of this question. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And she is asking this question. It's beginning with a word that's in the Greek. It would have been a question that she would have been anticipating a negative answer from Peter. So she's asking this question, anticipating that Peter's answer is going to be no. No. And right here, right now, this is Peter's chance 
to set his questioner straight? Where is the intensity of the response that we observed just in chapter 13? Instead of clinging to Jesus as he said he would. Remember, I'll I'll go anywhere, Jesus. I'll follow you anywhere. I'll do anything. I would lay down my life for you instead of clinging to Christ. He gives an answer so simple that if we aren't careful, we might overlook the incredible irony behind it. The ESV, if you're using the ESV this morning, it has the answer worded exactly as the Greek would intend for us to read and understand it. Look carefully together at his answer. It's at the end of verse 17. It's very short. You don't want to miss it. The end of verse 17, he said, I am not. I am not. Throughout John's entire gospel, one of the highlights of John's gospel, we cannot read John's gospel without missing it. It's so clear, it's so evident, it's so on display. Eight times in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am. John chapter 18, he sums it up in verse 5 with a resounding Statement. Look at verse 5 of John chapter 18. A statement that causes his captors to stumble backwards and collapse before Jesus. What does he say in verse 5? I am He. And what we cannot miss is what the Gospel writer wants us to see. There is a contrast here between Peter's response as he is on trial... And Jesus' response when he is on trial. One man elevates, leans into, and stands upon the truth. And one does not. Peter lies. Peter lies. And Peter, Peter is not lying to Caiaphas. He's not lying to Annas. He's not lying to one of the men who are in power or have any kind of power to put him in prison or do anything to him. Peter is lying to a servant girl. What could she have possibly done? Was it fear? Pride? Self-preservation? What is keeping Peter from telling the truth? Was he embarrassed by Jesus' humiliation? The contrast couldn't be any clearer, could it? Here we have Peter, nice and comfortably warm by the light of a charcoal fire being cared for by one of Annas' servant girls while Jesus faces the fire of a false trial. And so now John hits the pause button on Peter's trial, and he double-clicks back onto the scene that Jesus is facing. Look at verse 19. Jesus is standing before Annas. And what you will see as we continue through this part of the narrative is that though given the opportunity multiple times, there is not one charge in this particular portion of the text that's brought against Jesus. Not one. Everything they have on Jesus is fake news. Fake. There are no charges. 
There are no witnesses. The religious leaders are breaking their own laws here in order to condemn an innocent man. Their hatred of Jesus the person is clouding their judgment. And here, friends, we see how theology can so quickly become an easy scapegoat to justify hatred, division, and disunity. Their problem is both personal and theological, isn't it? But if they understood Jesus for who He really was, there would be no theological issues. Look at verse 19. What are they questioning? The high priest then questioned Jesus about His disciples and His teaching. Now, they don't like Jesus very much. We know, in fact, that they hated Jesus. But there were many people who liked Jesus. There were many people who were hearing His teaching, who liked His teaching, who had started to follow. And so how could these men, in a position of religious leadership, justify their hatred, justify their behavior, justify breaking their own laws to have a false trial? Only... By trying to make it about the difference in their theology. Church, it's time to pause and to reflect on the reality that this happens today. In buildings across America. In churches across America. There are folks that really the deep underlying issue is that they just don't get along with that person. But instead of leaning into that discomfort and learning how to love somebody who's different, they make it about theology. And so I'd be willing to say on any given Sunday, many of us who come into this room come with varying degrees on many, many different theological subjects and matters. Yes, we agree on the essentials. That's why we're here doing what we do. Yes, we understand the core elements of the gospel, but outside of that, there is probably great diversity represented in this room this morning. And oh, we have to be so careful not to fall into this same trap. And these men, they were unwilling to yield to the reality that Jesus' ways were better. That he was a more effective, better leader than they were. They weren't willing to acknowledge that or admit that. Indeed, he was the Messiah. They were going to make this about their theological differences. But Jesus, look how he answers them. When he was teaching, he was never hiding. Being fully God, Jesus was always behaving exactly as God desired him to behave. And just as God proclaimed to the prophet Isaiah, the words that Jesus speaks in verse 20 are echoed in Isaiah's prophecy. What does he say in verse 20? I have spoken openly to the world. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 19, I did not speak in secret. In a land of darkness. You think Jesus is living in a land of darkness? It's nighttime. 
Do you think God had this very seed in mind when he spoke to the prophet Isaiah? Jesus being falsely tried in the dark of night. Jesus who never taught in secret. Who always taught in the open. Isaiah chapter 48 verse 16. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning. John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. In fact, as Jesus' days drew to an end, Jesus was clearer and clearer and clearer regarding His identity about who He was. And now Jesus... I love when Jesus asks questions. When Jesus asks questions... There's always questions with purpose behind them. And so isn't it interesting that Jesus is on trial right here, right now, but in the text we're studying today, not one person asks a question, except who? In the trial, Jesus. Jesus is going to ask some questions right now. And these are going to be questions that reveal the true motivation of his questioners. And notice that his questions are questions not of what, but rather questions of why. And I've always said that questions are great at revealing motivations. If we want to reveal a person's motivations or intentions, one of the greatest ways to do it is to ask good questions. Why questions particularly are good at revealing true intentions and real motivations and Jesus actually in verse 21 he is going to give his questioners an opportunity to right the wrong of this false trial this isn't a legal trial it is what is happening to him is wrong it goes against so much of the laws that had been established and right now Jesus is giving them an opportunity to right that wrong look at verse 21 Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. In other words, guys, do yourself a favor. Make this thing somewhat legal. It should be happening in the daytime. We can't fix that. It's night. But at least if you're going to have this trial at night, in private, in secret, with no one else around, at least call forth some witnesses to bear witness of my teaching. And surely they had to be out there. I mean, just in John chapter 10, verse 33, you remember that there were some Jews who had wanted to stone Jesus for blasphemy. John chapter 10, verse 33. Surely if the Pharisees would have just stumbled outside into the darkness, they would have found at least one or two men willing to testify against Jesus. But their decision to keep this trial private, it proves how desperately they wanted to keep this a quiet matter. Jesus is revealing their motivation to keep this trial illegal and to keep this a secret. And again, yet another contrast appears why Jesus taught nothing in secret. He did not teach in secret. He taught openly in the public. 
the behaviors of the religious leaders even now were shrouded in secrecy. Secrets everywhere. The hostility and the anger of the moment overcomes the gospel writer. And now in verse 22, he identifies the first striking of Jesus. It's the first time Jesus is struck in the passion narrative. Look at verse 22. When he heard... Jesus say these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Hmm. There's no question. What question in the text has the high priest asked Jesus? There is no question. Only the allusion to questions, but not one specific question is identified. That was asked of Jesus. Still, Jesus is struck. Jesus, the man who had just healed the ear of an officer, is now struck by an officer's hand. And here's a question someone asked me one time, and I thought it was fair. Why didn't he turn the other cheek? Why didn't Jesus turn the other cheek? Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Why? Jesus is talking about the love of enemies in this portion of Matthew. And now face to face with the enemy when he is struck... There's no turning. And the answer to this may be found as we begin to unravel verse 23. Sometimes there are more effective ways to love our enemies than turning the other cheek. Truly knowing what our enemies need is vitally important. And friends, we let's not pretend like we're not going to have enemies. Jesus had Enemies, there are people in our lives who are not going to like us. They're not going to get along with us. They may even, quote unquote, hate us. But we are called to love them. We are called to love them, to learn how to love them. And this is difficult. And it's why we say that there's no relationships in our lives by accident. Every person that God places in our lives is placed in our lives for a purpose and with a reason. And even those that are difficult to love, even those that in our minds we may feel those feelings of hatred towards, Jesus calls us to love. And truly knowing how to love them is important. Jesus, right now, is facing a council of completely and utterly lost men who are living in total darkness. And what they need the most in this moment is not His other cheek. That's not what they need the most right now. Indeed, the other cheek might afford them the real estate to try to justify their behavior as appropriate. The other cheek might be what they want. I'm sure it would have been what they wanted. And if Jesus would have turned it to them, it probably would have been struck. But interestingly enough, what we want 
and what we really need are often two entirely different realities. Jesus knows that what they need right here, right now, in this moment, is not His other cheek. What they need is the truth. That's what's at stake right now. What's at stake right now is the truth. And if Jesus had said something wrong, it was up to them, it was up to the Sanhedrin to bring forth the witnesses to testify about it. Look at verse 23. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Again, his question of why is a question that reveals motivation. These men see Jesus as a prisoner, don't they? Isn't that how these men are seeing Jesus right now in this moment? As their prisoner. Jesus is bound. Jesus is being held captive. Jesus is being questioned. He is the one on trial. Yet in this moment, right now, He is acting as though He is free. He is questioning them. And here is another irony that's revealed in our text. Who is really in bondage here, friends? Who is really in bondage? Isn't the reality that though Jesus is the one who is bound, that He is the only one present in this crowd who is truly free? And aren't the ones who have put Jesus on trial, the ones who are blinded by their sin and by their hatred of Jesus, isn't it true that they are actually the ones who are in chains, who are in bondage? This is so freeing, church, and we don't want to miss this because there has been a lot of talk these days about freedom. Some may think today we've had our freedoms infringed upon. And you know what? Perhaps in the small scheme of things related to our blink of a time here on earth, we've been pinched a bit. Maybe. But in the grand scheme of the great and vast reality that we have set before us in eternity, we have lost and can lose nothing. It is not man that sets us free, friends. Man has no power to give true freedom or to take true freedom away. True freedom is found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows something so powerful and so freeing. He knows something that allows Him to stand before His accusers and His murderers with the great confidence of a man who is free. He's spoken earlier in the Gospel. The words are our words, church. They're our words for eternity. They are powerful. They apply to today just as they did when He spoke them. They're just as applicable. They're for us right now. They were for Jesus and they're for us in this moment. We are to apply them at every intersection of our lives no matter where we find ourselves. John chapter 8, verse 32. You will know the... And the truth 
will set you free. Why did the officer strike Jesus? Because he was living in bondage to sin and darkness. And why was Jesus, though bound here by men, truly free? Because Jesus knew and embraced the truth. And the truth is what sets us free. Friends, I know many of you know this, but I need to say it. We're not going to find the truth on Fox News, on CNN, on any other major news network that's out there. We're not going to find it in the newspapers, in the social media feeds. It's gone. It does not exist. Those are the opinions of, of men. Facts are facts. Stats are stats. Both can be interpreted and used to the advantage of whoever is funding their research. We've all seen it. The truest and most consistent and comprehensive and reliable and accurate source of truth that we can ever have, we have always had. It's what we find in this word, friends. This word is our source of freedom. These were the motivations and understandings behind some of the greatest heroes in American history. People like Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, David Walker, Sarah Parker Ramond. Their movement, the abolitionist movement, was a movement that was grounded in truth. The true truth that freedom is granted to all men by God, not the government. And ironically, many men and women who held slaves would use that same source of truth to justify their sins. Many in slavery, though bound by men, lived as free men in their hearts, in their minds, and even subtly in their behaviors and actions. And in the end, friends, what we always find is that truth wins. Truth wins. Truth and freedom, church, are concepts that are intimately woven together. Their words are stitched onto the hearts of every true believer in Jesus Christ. So though it is Jesus in verse 24 who is bound and led to Caiaphas, John has captured for us in this narrative the reality of Jesus' true and real freedom found in truth. And now he shifts the scene back to Peter's trial. Remember, there's two people on trial here, right? Jesus, formal trial, well, illegally formal, in front of Caiaphas, Annas, and Peter on trial before servant girls and other people. Look at verse 25. Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said again, I am not. This picture is a picture of a church. It's called St. Peter of the Cock Crow Church. That's the name of the church. It is the church that was built uh, around the location where it is believed that Peter denied Christ three times. And you can see its building. It's, it's in the middle there, I guess, of Jerusalem. 
in Israel. Peter's second denial follows the words of his first. And again, highlight the difference between Jesus, who is the great I am, and Peter, who is I am not. But now, in another strike of irony, isn't it amazing who Peter runs into? Of all the people that he could have run into, he runs into one of Malchus's relatives. Look at verse 26. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Aren't you the dude that cut my buddy's ear off? <laughs> there's, there's really three ironies here, aren't there? Is it, it's not only is it an irony that of all people Peter would run into, he runs into a man who saw him in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, of all the people. But also that this very man happens to be the relative of the man that Peter diced up in the garden. But then, the third irony, which I really think is amazing, and it's another contrast. Peter has a witness to what he's on trial for. Jesus did not. So in Peter's trial, the presence of a witness, I saw you in the garden with him. You were there. Jesus, no witnesses. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, had once uttered these very words. Matthew chapter 26. Even if I must die with you, I will not, I will never deny you. And then verse 27 of our text today. Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. how that rooster's call must have penetrated the heart of Peter when he heard it. He was a man who would not have forgotten the words of Jesus. And I cannot imagine the air that left his lungs when he heard the voice of that rooster call out across the air that evening. That feeling, perhaps, that you get right before you might pass out. You need to sit down, catch your breath. Amazing. Peter's denial. How might our lives look in light of the realities in this text this morning? You know, church, one of the realities is we, many of us, do not deny Jesus with our words. But sometimes, friends, we do by our actions. Sometimes we fail to apply and live in the freedom that He has given us in His truth. We struggle when we're faced with difficult and uncomfortable circumstances. Sometimes we struggle to grab hold and stand on the freedom that we've been given in His Word, abiding in His Word, continuing to live in a daily reminder of His presence and the power that is living and dwelling within us. Sometimes, friends, we are more motivated by fear. I'm convinced that's what's happening to Peter in this text. Motivated by fear of men and what men would have done to him in that moment. Sometimes we live motivated by that same fear rather than love of God and love of others. And we make choices sometimes, church, that put us in bondage when Jesus has spoken to our true and real freedom that comes from His Word the truth. 
And in light of the reality of the freedom that we have in Christ, our lives should come to be defined as living in confidence, power, and freedom as we grow in love through the work of the Spirit as He teaches us how to apply the truth that we have been given through His Word. Let's pray. Father, again, as we gather on Sundays around Your Word, we are indebted to the example that we witness in the character of Your Son, Jesus. Oh, how motivating His example to stand in confidence, embracing truth, holding on to truth, perfectly knowing who He was, perfectly knowing Your will, perfectly knowing how to apply the truth of Your Word, the Word that He was speaking with every word that He said in every situation that He was in in His life. Father, we know that so frequently in our own lives we fall short of the application of these things. It is hard for us to grab hold of truth in a world that consistently bombards us with the opinions and views of man. God, our prayer would be that we would be a people that would care more about what's in this Word than what's in the screens in front of us. Our prayer, Lord, is that this would be our first place to stop and not a place that we stop along the way somewhere. That Jesus' example of freedom in truth would be the same example that we would be able to take and apply in our daily lives. And where we fall short, Lord, we ask that Your Spirit would work to reveal to us our own deficiencies in being able to live in the freedom that You have called us to. Help us to see, Father, where we fail to glorify You by the way that we love, live, or lead, and give us conviction, Lord, to confess and to repent of the times in our lives where we walk into bondage, where you have set us free. Lord, might your son Jesus and his example be a great motivator to us as we go about this week. Teach us to love as he loved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.